Welcome to Arconnect Sessions, episode 72. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia and Ken. Julia Ingalls, a writer here at Arconnect, is joining us again today. Donna sadly can't join us this week, but she will be back next week. So today we're talking about the mystery of residential architecture fees and the recent news that the leaders of the now-defunct Architecture for Humanity are getting sued for $3 million. Before we get started, though, we have a quick note from this episode's sponsor, BQE. Today's podcast is sponsored by AIA Advantage Partner BQE Software and the makers of ArchiOffice. ArchiOffice is the only office and project management software built with the needs of architects in mind. It'll help you manage people and projects while you focus on designing great architecture. Our podcast listeners can get a fully functional 15-day trial of ArchiOffice at bqe.com forward slash Archonnect. We will also have a link to that in the show notes. All right, let's get started. So kind of big news that, that came out this week broke by uh, architectural record of Architecture for Humanity and the uh, the leaders and the board members getting sued for $3 million. Yeah. Paul, you kind of had a moment of tingling clairvoyance around this. You were kind of predicting that something was going to go down, not knowing exactly what it would be, but just like there's some un unheard of news here. Like when we first heard that Architecture for Humanity would be going bankrupt and dissolving in 2015. Well, I'm probably not the only one out there that that was suspecting that there's something coming out of this because it did the organization did dissolve surprisingly quickly with a lot of the chapters around the country completely unaware about the uh, about the bankruptcy until they were reading about it on on sites like Arconnect. So this news doesn't come as a complete shock, but still it's it's still quite shocking news. It's also a little bit, I would say, concerning for the Open Architecture Collaborative, which was kind of the offshoot organization that only recently launched officially and was kind of there to gather up all of the loose ends, so to speak, after Architecture for Humanity declared bankruptcy and kind of pick back up that volunteer effort and redirect it. So we've actually had an interview with the organizer around that on another one-to-one -one and trying to understand how you pick up a legacy like Architecture for Humanities, which of course is pretty strong and admirable legacy of doing work in disaster areas and doing a lot of good work. But this lawsuit is just a huge kind of, whether or not it's true, it just kind of brings that whole reputation a little bit into question, given that the founders were supposedly or allegedly using restricted funds and grants to do things that they were not supposed to do with that money. It looks like they got into trouble with expanding. I mean, that was the principal problem. And then they crashed as a result. Uh, which is a pretty typical like business problem, right? So many businesses, but obviously the use of restricted funds to buy stuff that they shouldn't have done with those funds. But yeah, I think that's the that's the root of the problem. That the money that was donated for specific reasons was being used for other other reasons without so, full disclosure. So in the lawsuit, it references that the money would, if it were to be regained, or if they, the architecture for humanity loses the lawsuit, then who are the different stakeholders involved in this? There's like Nike, there's universities, there's a bunch of other people who didn't have their their funds that they had donated for specific projects used appropriately. I think that those were people that the uh, organization owed money to that were then unable to fulfill their payments because of the bankruptcy filing. Mm. So this money, if, if they if they do win this judgment, I think this money will be going towards the uh, those companies that are owed the money. So far, I mean, we don't really know that much about about the case. It seems like nobody's really admitting to, to know any details. I, I believe Cameron uh, Sinclair responded saying, uh, we were saddened by the news. We are working with our attorneys to understand the decisions that were made during and after our transition. We hope the case will be dismissed and are glad that the chapters are continuing the good work. Also, the Open Architecture Collaborative that run by Garrett Jacobs, 
also made a comment that that he, it was very surprising when everything kind of fell apart because he was actively involved in Architecture for Humanity during that transition. So at this point, we don't really have that much to report on it besides news of this uh, lawsuit being filed. But uh, we definitely will keep our readers up to date on any new information. Does anybody else have any thoughts or... I think the the one thing that I have to wonder about is that, you know, when we're everyone's clamoring for people to be held accountable for um, misuse of funds and, and um, during the market crash and the way all of that broke down, I even left to wonder if this is a real, is this criminal? Is what, they, is what was done criminal? And is that something that's lurking on the horizon from? Is that why there's not a whole lot of public comment around this from the, from the particular stakeholders that are being sued? Because it would seem that if you're misusing funds that were, you're not supposed to be using, it seems seems like fraud to me. And or would it be embezzlement? Yeah, I mean, it's to, something, to, right? It seems like it would be criminal. Yeah. I've noticed they have 10 volunteer board members who are named in the suit. So I'm wondering how many, like it seemed to me like they were running on pretty tight margins. So how many of these people were actually paid to do their jobs? I.e., is it possible that someone who was in charge of, you know, accounting or management was just not particularly good or they were there on a volunteer basis or, you know, I want to think the best of architecture for humanities. I'm trying to like bring an optimistic note that it's just simple incompetence, but maybe that's not possible. I don't know. Yeah. And a lot of times these volunteer, quote unquote, volunteer board members, I mean, I, I've I've applied for board positions for art organizations here in Minneapolis that are, uh, I think, essentially nonprofits, I, I would imagine. And they oftentimes, you don't just get to put your name on an organization. Usually you have to come in with your own kitty. And a small organization wanted me to pay a pretty decent amount of money, which for at the time when I was unemployed, it was really a, a bit of a stretch for me. So I wonder how much money, if any, these people kicked into it as well. And, and there's a pretty big name architect that connected with this organization, Toshiko Mori. So, and what I'm concerned with most of all is the down, the, you know, downrange effects of an organization like this that sought to do good throughout, not just, you know, here, but across the world and, and um, other organizations that try to you know, do the same kinds of things. And do we have to look at architectural charitable organizations such as, um, you know, um, Jimmy Carter's, uh, what, what the hell is that? Hab- Habit. Habitat. Habitat. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, what are, what are the long-term implications, if any? I mean, maybe, you know, it doesn't go, it doesn't do very well when you're, when your uh, chief, what is it? He called himself Eternal Optimist. Eternal Optimist is going around giving TED talks and flying all over the world, and is the darling of Hollywood. And that certainly doesn't help the cause. I mean, you know, that's the one thing about Jimmy Carter. At least it was run by a guy who actually ran a country. Uh, <laughs> so you can put for whatever, whatever that's, whatever that's worth. At least you know he's not going to be pocketing that uh, that coin for a new, uh, you know, Apple. Um, um, Mac machines or whatever are flying around to meet um, Ben Stiller. But yeah, so that's my my biggest concern. Is, are, is there going to be more kind of dominoes to fall and is, does this impact uh, efforts going forward? Yeah. I mean, regardless of the criminality of it, I think ultimately it comes down or it doesn't come down, but I'm, I'm very curious about where this money was being applied if it wasn't being applied to the areas that it was supposed to be. Maybe it was being applied to, you know, with a sincerely good intention of keeping the business alive, or maybe it was being applied to, uh, you know, first class tickets around the world. We don't know yeah, yet, yeah. but it's extra shocking to hear when a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to doing good does something bad. Uh, you know, you kind of expect it from, from, you know, big, uh, greedy corporations, but for something like this, it's not expected and it's disappointing, especially when you know that there are a lot of people out there that have been supporting this organization with very little money of their own. 
And, you know, Minneapolis still has our chapter here and it's a pretty, um, the few times I did actually go to, uh, AFH meetings here in Minneapolis, that, that chapter was pretty solid. And I think they're still running. Well, I think when bankruptcy was declared in 2015, everyone felt like, oh, this is like the classic end to an, this, you know, completely flawless nonprofit story that it can't, to be good, you cannot exist. You, know, can, you cannot continue to exist. But what Architecture Record points out, which I find pretty interesting, is that Sinclair left the company in 2013 in October, or left the nonprofit. And the window of time that they're looking at for these restricted funds being mismanaged is after he left. So it's between July 2012 and December of 2014. So I think it also brings into questions of leadership and how a nonprofit can continue to not just exist, but exist well and function smoothly and ethically in what are no doubt kind of tempestuous times as the founder left. Yeah. Well, we'll be watching this story closely and reporting on on any new events that'll unfold. So should we move on to the next Let's topic? Also money, very money <laughs> focused, I must say. So Julia is joining us on this episode so that she can lend her expertise on a topic. Oh, that... no. Sorry. <laughs> they know you're here. Oh, you are already right. speaking. I guess they heard you. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Until we have chapters then. But um, <laughs> so the day this episode will air, uh, Julia's piece will have been made live on the site that same morning. So Julia, you wrote a piece for Archonnect about navigating the very tricky and complex world of how architects decide what fees to charge for residential projects. Can you give us kind of just a basic sure. one-two on the piece? Yeah. Um, um, I mean, the simplest way to begin is, you know, no project or very few projects are exactly the same. So every time that you design a fee structure, you're sort of designing a unique structure to try and predict what it will cost to design and build something that does not yet exist. So it's a <laughs> you're working from a very complex start to begin with. And then depending on where you're based regionally and uh, what sort of local construction costs are like and the type of materials you're using and condition of the site and about 12 or 2,000 different factors. <laughs> Your fee structure is going to be based on things that, you know, you really have to put some time into uh, considering. And we focused on residential fee structures because within architecture, you have so many different types, residential, commercial, institutional, among others. And within those types, you also have uh, separate phases for each project. So generally speaking, you have uh, design concepts, schematic design, construction documents, and then construction administration. And again, depending on the scale and scope of the project, one firm may handle all of those phases. In some cases, some people elect to just skip construction administration because they feel like they can either do it themselves or it's, you know, it's an additional expense they don't need. But if you are a person who wants a house and you want it well designed, I would really recommend that you have an architect handle all of these stages and preferably, if possible, the same architect, just so that there's less confusion and less chance for redundancy and or certain aspects of the project being completely left off the table. <laughs> so which can get tricky later if you have a built structure that's missing something that's not technically included in the initial bid. So for example, electrical schematics and cabinetry details are not something that you typically get unless you very specifically, as the client, speak with the architect about what you're looking for. So I would recommend reading the piece. I wrote it all down in a logical form. You can read it. It's easier <laughs> listening to me talk about it, but they're basically, it just, it's a very complicated thing. But Saying that, there is a general guideline for residential projects. You can bill one of two ways. Either you have a flat fee, flat hourly fee, or you do it based on construction cost. And that's a general statement. <laughs> there can be exceptions, what? so please podcast. I know, don't. 
spear me with a fork if you can hold off on that anyway. But that's generally how it works for a very broad audience. But Amelia and Paul, you said you were speaking to architects based in Los Angeles who laughed off the 6 to 8% fee. They felt like that was not regionally accurate. They, they had experiences where they would bill 15 to 18%. Well, I mean, consistent with the whole notion that this is kind of a mystery to, to everyone. We spoke to two local architects. They're both friends of mine and they're both they're both active, successful residential architects, and they both had very different responses. One said that the 6 to 8% is really low. They, they go for 15%. They know firms that go, go for 18%. The other said that 8% is pretty typical. And he mentioned that the other architect, I'm, I'm not going to name names because I, I didn't ask them permission about that, but um, <laughs> okay. said that, you know, that, that sounds really high. But uh, the architect that, that I spoke to that quoted 8% as being standard said that they, they don't like to charge based on percentage because often the client will really lowball their budget to try to bring a price down. So the architect kind of uses his or her own intelligence to figure out what the actual cost will be to, to determine a price. This also so quickly gets into an like an, an existentialist downward spiral of what the architect's role in the project is. Julia, I'm referencing all the different stages of the project that the architect can and should be involved in and how they have to be very, very specific about what exactly and have this conversation with the client to be as honest and as specific as possible from the get go as to what they're actually going to give the client and what they're and how they're going to charge for each individual aspect of that. And I think, Ken, maybe you can speak to this a little bit and also to the, the mystery surrounding all this is partially because as soon as a number enters the conversation or a percentage enters the conversation, then that shifts everyone's level of expectation around what is actually realistic, what is a reach, what is ambitious, what is competitive. And also, you know, you want to make money on a project. You also don't want to, and you don't want to give your services away for lower than what you think is their value, even if that's the most competitive rate. So it's obviously an incredibly fraught <laughs> process. Um, maybe you can speak a little bit to that. You know, it, it is. I think for me in the certain projects that I've worked on uh, for myself in the past, I certainly don't price myself very well. I think when I was looking at some of the f online, uh, there's a lot of uh, different, a lot of information about fee structures and relative to the types of buildings and the level of difficulty with uh, respect to each kind of building. My fee does not really account for all the amount of the amount of work I put into it. And part of the problem is, is that I, we I'm working with uh, clients who are typically on the lower end of the spectrum in terms of what they have to spend. And the one thing that always concerns me is we put the projects out for bid and we're never working with one particular general contractor. And it might be a little bit easier if I if we were, because then I would have to, I would spend less time documenting the project than I would otherwise. But because I don't know who's ultimately going to get the project, my concern is avoiding change orders at the other side. Ah, so, change orders. Sorry. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> it's like the scariest two words in architecture. It is. And, and, and it's ultimately, you know, I've done work on a design build basis so that the mechanical and electrical MEP side of it is the design build. And, and that's, in some effort, and I think it's, I think ultimately, if I continue doing this kind of work in the future, I will not go design build for mechanical because it just, I, I don't know how to evaluate the systems that they propose. So the fees are, the, the, the strange things happen on the other side where the, the change orders do come in. But my doc, I try to put as much information in the documents as possible so that when the general contractor comes around and tries to hit the owner with a change order, I have a near photographic memory of my projects I'm, since I'm the one that drew it. So I knew exactly 
exactly, for instance, you know, whether or not the, what the general contractor was saying to the, to the owner was actually accurate. On the butcher's project, for, for example, I had only in the contract, I had only guaranteed three construction meetings. Hmm. And really? okay. yeah, that was a big mistake. <laughs> um, I was there for every single construction meeting for the duration of the project. And the reason why I did that is that the one thing I knew is that my client they knew their food, they knew their product, they knew what they were doing very well in that regard, but they had no idea what it took to put a building together. And they had no idea how to evaluate things. So the GC, when proposing value engineering of certain things, I was not at this one particular construction meeting and the GC said, well, I'm going to bring in some alternates, some different finishes to kind of try to value engineer the, um, the tile down. So they came back with a tile that was, was awful. It was an awful tile. And when I had heard they were going to do that, I came to the construction meeting. I wasn't intending to, but I came. And from that point going forward, and they brought a different uh, lighting fixture. And I said, what is that fixture? And he said, oh, it's the, the, the lighting value engineering for the project. I said, for what space? And they go, the entire project. And it wound up being a chain hung box fixture that they were going to hang throughout the entire space. And it was the most ghastly. And I turned to the client <laughs> and I said, what is your impression of what value engineering means? And she says, well, she goes, basically, my understanding of what value engineering is, is that we're going to take the gold plated fixture and we're going to do a silver plated fixture. I said, that's exactly right. I said, what do you think that fixture is over there? And she goes, that's a redesign. And I said, that's a redesign. That's not a value engineering. So what I, I had to do that, <laughs> I had to do that for the client and I lost money because of it. I didn't make any money on the construction administration. It was, it was particularly difficult. Yeah. Value engineering is such a heartbreak. It seems like that's something that you see a lot of in large commercial projects. Uh, I kind of wanted to touch on the relationship between the architect and the client, you know, in a house project, because it seems like that's an incredibly, I mean, it's always an intimate relationship, right? Yeah. You would say, but especially when you're designing a house, because it is very much about what two people or however many people are living in the house want and kind of how the architect perceives what they're asking for and <laughs> how that gets rendered in the design concept phase. I feel like there should be some required training or initiation by all first-time clients who have never worked with an architect before, where they go to some retreat or something and are told, okay, these are all of the things that go into building whatever you're actually asking for. My father's in this position where he's redesigning a deck in his front yard, and he is like the essence of value engineering. He's just like, I don't need anyone to tell me how to design this thing. I just want the engineer to come in and decide like what is the absolute cheapest thing I can do to get like the structurally safest thing to do. Well, he is a NASA engineer. Right? Yes, that's okay. true. <laughs> so it, it comes from somewhere for sure. Um, that That's his people. But at the same time, like I, I recognize that I can only go so far as trying to say like, but value added. <laughs> and so it also brings up the, the horrors of this. We saw this on the news last week the campaign ad posted uh, from Hillary Clinton's campaign attacking Donald Trump by using an architect that he had used for one of his clubhouses, I believe, who was wrapped up in this horrible exchange with Trump after the fact where Trump refused to pay him for what he was being billed. And eventually he got only, I think, a third of what he was actually initially asking for. So hopefully not all clients will be on the level of the Donald, but it definitely, it was like a cautionary tale, I feel, to a lot of people who hadn't yet been spurned, um, that set things out as strongly and as tightly legally as possible from the get-go. I have to admit, I haven't, I haven't watched the ad, but I, I am familiar with the ad and I have watched a lot of comments pop up on Twitter and Facebook from architects that I, that I know 
stating that this is pretty typical. I mean, I'm sure that Donald Trump represents the extreme of this, but it it is pretty typical where clients will just say like, this project has cost me more than I wanted to pay, so I'm not going to pay you anymore. You know, kind of putting the blame on the architect. I mean, Ken, have you ever experienced this? I haven't, you know, but one of the things I've done in the past on some projects is I front end. Um, I don't pay myself for the construction administration, even though I'm going to spend a lot of time there. So I get my most of my fee at the beginning, towards the beginning. I get a retainer and then I get a fee and then I get another fee when the construction documents go out for permitting and bid. So I'm pretty much almost all paid at that point. And at the end, you know, I'm not getting as much, but I I know that and I know I'm not going to get hit with that particular situation because if you don't pay me, then I'm not going to answer any code questions. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, if you don't pay me, I'm not, I'm just going to, I'm code questions will come in. I'm not going to issue. I'm not going to issue it. Then I'm not going to respond to bids. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. So I get paid. However, you know, the the one thing that I think it's a little screwed up too is that, you know, people think that when, okay, if the client comes in with a budget number says, oh, my house, I want my house to cost, you know, or it's hard for house, but if you put the project out to bid, you need, you need to get paid what the construction cost is, not what your budget is. <laughs> so your fee is based on your construction cost, not the budget the client has, because the client's going to grow that budget because they have to. They want their gold-plated Donald Trump fixtures. They, they want it. <laughs> And they might think it costs, they go, well, my budget is this, but then when it puts out the bid and you come back and the project's, you know, $200,000, they just kind of shake it off. But you, if you tie your fee to what, you know, what the initial number is, no, no, it's tied to the construction cost. So that the bids come back high, you're going to get what to construct. I think some people do that as well, which is a little bit, you know, don't, don't do that, you know, in, in the sense that they don't connect it to the construction cost, but they tie it to a, a number that's kind of pulled out of thin air by the client. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. It does. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I remember hearing of, of a lot of firms that actually went out of business, you know, without getting paid when uh, Dubai dried up, you know, with all these huge projects in Dubai that were just getting unfulfilled. One of the also kind of many negative trigger effects of all these kind of inconsistencies or difficulties with establishing a like sensible and ethical fee structure is, of course, other things like unpaid labor. We get so quickly, I can imagine, to a firm that is so desperate to cut costs to be able to actually pay most of their employees and to get in a project on whatever they have might resort to things like hiring unpaid interns or simply like not doing due diligence in certain things. And it's, it's just kind of a nasty thing to imagine that while we can't set a established rate for fees based on, Ken, you spoke a little bit earlier before we were recording the podcast about the uh, antitrust agreements but with the AIA that forbids setting like an actual consistent nationwide fee structure, but that we have the this constant back and forth that often leads to people trying to undercut one another and can eventually then devalue the profession as a whole. And that's that's like the most tragic thing <laughs> I, I see coming out of this, just as to be a huge downer. Well, it seems like one of the most complicated things with, with uh, fees and, and architecture, I mean, I guess with any creative field, but architecture is, is something that people have a harder time understanding, I think. I mean, ultimately, you can spend as much time as you want to on a project. And there are architects out there that will crank it out as fast as they possibly can. And obviously, you know, they can charge less by doing that. But then there are, there are architects that really are much more devoted to the art of, of uh, building design. And, and they're going to spend more time and it's going to be a better outcome, hopefully. You know, maybe, maybe not in some cases, but, but the, the architects that really, that really cares do spend more time and, and that time, you know, should be paid for to have good quality work. But a lot of people don't understand that, you know, they, they just shop around for the best price. 
I like the design build scenario. When I was at the convention in Philadelphia, I went and sat in on the uh, Jonathan Siegel presentation. And I, I don't particularly like him as an individual. I mean, he's a really a bit of a personality that's hard to take. However, he does make a good case for the architect being the builder and being the owner and building your own work. I mean, you really, you can have a better sense of how you can, you're working with yourself on every aspect of the project. And, you know, you're not going to shortchange the guy building it because you are the guy building it. You're not going to shortchange the guy selling it because you are the guy selling it. And you're not going to fuck the architect because you're him. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that's why so many famous uh, architects kind of got their start by building an iconic house for themselves? They put their name, I mean, you know, Charlie Gwath built his parents' home and, you know, before he finished his school and now he's, you know, he was the the man. (laughs) (laughs) Now I just got to get my parents a few hundred million dollars to let me do that and you know, I can be the man. Yeah. No, a lot of, a lot of architects did get their careers off the ground with a house for their parents. Not everybody is that fortunate to have parents with that much money, but that's true. All right. I think that's, that's it for this week. What about the arc? You want to talk about the arc? <laughs> oh, we'll oh, get to the arc. The arc, the Actually, arc will come. No. <laughs> I, I hear that uh, Amelia is talking to the architect of the arc. The architect. And when we say the architect, we mean a building architect, right? Not, yeah, not so th- God. <laughs> well, Noah. Noah. Not actual <laughs> yeah, Noah. Noah, Noah no. that, yeah. um, he is not Noah incarnate. So actually, I will get to speak to the arch- architect of record himself, Leroy Troyer, for our upcoming one-to-one. So I'm very much looking forward to that. They already sent some pretty fantastic photos of just like the construction process. No hand of God in sight. So very much looking forward to that. I'm sure everybody is. <laughs> Monday. Stay Monday. tuned. <laughs> Monday, Monday, I know, Monday. I know. I'm, list- I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting that conversation. Don't hold any punches. I'll try. I'll, okay. I'll bring out my uh, flying spaghetti monster uh, <laughs> plush puppet to keep me company. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode. Uh, thanks to Julia for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Make sure to read the piece on architectural fees coming out tomorrow as of this recording today as of the release of this recording so it's online right now listeners if you have any questions comments or suggestions you can reach us on twitter at our twitter account arc sessions or with hashtag arconnect sessions you can also send an email to connect at arconnect.com we would actually love if the architects out there listening to this could share some of their personal information and stories and thoughts on on fees because uh, this is clearly an issue that has a lot of different angles and a lot of different uh, experiences with different architects. So we'd love to hear your stories. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes and uh, we will talk to you next week.